everybody and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the podcast that aims to illuminate, demystify and deconfuse the wonderful and rapidly world, rapidly evolving world of oncology. Uh, my name is Michael Fernando and I'm joined by my illustrious co-host and very good friend, Dr. Joshua Hurwitz. How are you going, Josh? Uh, not too bad, Mikey. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. So um, both of us are um, a few years into our oncology training and I guess this being our very first episode, we'd uh, talk about um, what led us to actually come up with this idea because I think, Josh, uh, I would be fair in saying uh, People don't want to be an oncologist from childhood. It's not one of those things. So uh, when you when you decide you want to do it and you start your training, it can all be a bit uh, overwhelming. Is that do Do you agree with that? Yeah. No. Look, that, that's really true. And to be honest with you, what you see when when you see your bosses or you see your superiors do oncology versus the day to day ins and outs are very different. when you start med school oncology generally isn't the top unless you sort of want to do that research side but yeah it's a it's a whole different ball game when you're doing it all the time yeah especially in those first few months where you've been uh, asking other people for advice and then all of a sudden they're coming to you asking for uh, diagnoses and prognoses it's all uh, it can all be a bit overwhelming so what what we thought we'd do this this podcast aims to, to aims to um or is aimed at, I should say, a a, a wide variety of people, um, even people who are non medical and just interested. But the um, the main uh, audience we want to reach are those people who are about to start and have absolutely no idea where to start learning. Um, just to ease you in it. So what we'll be doing throughout this podcast is. Uh, with a uh, eclectic cast of characters joining us along the way, um, going uh, going through many of the uh, the basic and seminal uh, trials, and uh, hopefully providing some interesting discussion, and maybe even some clarity on rationale as to why we do things. Um, and if we can break it down and make it simple, that's I guess really our goal because that's what I would have wanted when I started, or even like when I was doing my junior training, like being like. I don't understand this. Um, so we're hopefully going to break things down and just make it enjoyable and a little bit easy to understand. Yeah, and, and hopefully uh, we, we don't send too many of you to sleep uh, with our dulcet tones. That's my job. <laughs> so um, today I, um, we figured we'd start off simple because um, as any oncologist worth his salt will know that there is a science to oncology and there's also an art. But one of the uh, tumours that is both common but also has a little bit less uh, in the uh, in terms of grey is that of prostate cancer. So to start off, we thought we'd start there. I'll give a bit of a background, Josh, if I may, just a simple summary of prostate cancer. Go to town. Love to hear um, it. So uh, I'm sure that many of our listeners um, uh, and many oncologists and people in the general public will know someone who has had prostate cancer in the past. It is among the most common cancers worldwide. Um, uh, in uh, a number of years ago, it was estimated that there were over one and a half million cases and over 350,000 deaths worldwide. So it's definitely something that is going to come up uh, very commonly uh, in uh, any oncologist or oncologist tra- oncology trainees practice. Um, 
the overall five-year survival rate, though, is over 98%. So it is these are patients who tend to follow us around, or we tend to follow them, I should say, for, for quite a long time. And it's one of those cancers that we've gotten really, really good at treating, probably because it is so common. Uh, prostate cancer is uh, divided into two sort of... Uh, uh, segments, I guess you could say, um, with the dividing line being when uh, androgen deprivation therapy or ADT uh, stops working. ADT is a little factoid. Josh has been uh, uh, known uh, as a therapeutic option since 1941. Do you know who um, uh, first found it or identified it, what his name was? I do. Once I get my thing up here and start cheating. <laughs> so since you brought up 1941, I thought I just had to ask. No, here we go. Hang on. It was Charles Huggins, apparently. Yeah, great name, must yeah. say. Um, I, the only thing to add so far is that I think it was this week uh, that they've actually said prostate cancer will be the most, the, the highest diagnosed cancer in Australia. Um, it's overtaken breast cancer, mm. I'm pretty sure. And that's probably a, a, a part, at least partially due to the fact that prostate cancer is a, a predominantly a disease of old men. Um, I know you've said this, Josh, in the past that if uh, every every man was to be was to live to a, to a million years old, then every man would also get prostate cancer at some point. Yeah, we can guarantee that on yeah. this podcast. <laughs> yes, take that's the that's the uh, podcast, uh, Josh and Mike's guarantee. So, um, in terms of uh, Looking at prostate cancer, I guess the main players that are going to come up in this podcast are uh, the idea of hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, which is when ADT uh, or androgen deprivation therapy is actually working, and uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer, which is when it tends to work less and further things have to be added on. And for this first uh, episode, we're going to look at hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Um, um. And just just before you kind of head on, like you mentioned something really interesting, Mikey. Um, when we talk about castrate sensitive and castrate resistant, because uh, I was doing a little bit of interesting reading about Charles Huggins um, before this podcast, just because he had a, the world's best name, he does. And I, w- I wish I had a name like that. Um, you know, I'd go to see him as a doctor. But my question is this: castration or like male castration. Uh, you know, we see generally chemical castration, but have you seen much in your practice, like physical castration of, I guess, your patients? No, no, I can't say that I have, although I I have read probably uh, when I was going on a similar wiki walk to you, um, that uh, that, uh, that was one of the first methods of androgen deprivation therapy was physical castration. Mm, interesting. Anyway, sorry. Please, please. No, continue. no. Uh, um, so, so I guess the main players with this are um, that enable us to track when prostate cancer comes uh, becomes castration resistant is the PSA or prostate specific antigen, um, uh, which is uh, one of the more accurate tumor markers. Most tumor markers aren't worth the paper or the pixels they they are written on, um, but PSA is one of the more uh, useful ones. Uh, as well as uh, imaging. Now, there's conventional imaging, which I'm sure Josh, Josh will mention in his uh, charted analysis, which is um, CT, uh, chest, abdo, pelvises, and whole body bone scans, nuclear medicine bone scans. But I guess a point of discussion that we'll have when we talk about charted is um, the the uh, how the uh, introduction and wide adoption of PSMA PET, which is widely deemed to be more sensitive um, uh, at picking up small uh, deposits of disease uh, has uh, potentially changed that. 
Um, so without further adieu, um, just to frame this whole conversation, um, I'll just just provide a bit of a case. So uh, you're a first-year oncology trainee. You're about a week into the job. If you're anything like I was, you're absolutely scared out of your britches. Um, and uh, you see a patient in clinic who's 68 years old and has been referred to you for consideration of systemic therapy for a new diagnosis of prostate cancer, never been treated before. Uh, and uh, obviously, aside from the prostate and from some pelvic lymphadenopathy, he's also got more prostate cancer in his bones than bones. So he's got uh, particularly affecting the spine, nothing critical, of course, um, but uh, also lesions in his humerus and his uh, femoral shafts. So I guess the question that will be plaguing this uh, uh, hypothetical trainee's mind is, what the hell do I do? And uh, so let's uh, let's talk about Chartered, Josh. Yeah, so as, as a trainee, I'd definitely uh, take that history and then speak to my boss. But um, <laughs> it's a good general rule. Yeah, so look, Chartered is actually a bit of an older trial, um, which I didn't realize. I was like, oh, you know, it's obviously one of these things, but it's from 2015. Um, and the title, so it's a, it's a Sweeney paper, but essentially the title is Chemohormonal Therapy in Metastatic Hormone-Sensitive Prostate Cancer. So breaking down the title, I know it's boring, it's like it's a title, but look, literally you're giving chemotherapy in addition to and androgen deprivation therapy in someone who's been diagnosed with metastatic cancer early stage. So what I mean by that is they haven't had multiple lines of therapy. Because we don't generally see sort of localized um, prostate cancer, do we, Josh? It, it normally comes to us when they do have metastatic disease. No, look, if, yeah, yeah, you're completely right. If it's localized, they're probably going to be managed by their urologist. Um, Maybe with the radiation, with radiation oncology as well. Exactly, because um, you know, people don't refer generally to an oncologist if you've got trouble peeing, uh, and if they do, then we'll probably <laughs> refer on. Um, uh, yeah. So, look, I guess, I guess this was a good study for a number of reasons. Um, so, the background to this is that what they know, and they've known this, as Mikey said, for about eighty years. You know, ADT is the backbone of treatment for metastatic prostate cancer. Um, their question was whether giving docetaxel, which is the chemotherapy agent, would actually make someone live longer than those with just ADT alone. Okay. Um, looking further at the background, you know, this has been the mainstay of treatment. They had meta-analyses before this. Um, and essentially, the docetaxel was used in a later line of therapy, which did show benefit, but... They, with a lot of effective treatments and not just docetax, so they want to see what happens earlier on. So the other trial name for this, to let you guys know, is actually the E3805 study. Um, I think they potentially changed the name later on because looking at the original publication for New England General Medicine, they didn't really have it mentioned. Um, Maybe Chartered was just catchier. Look, yeah, so one of, one of the, uh, I guess, the tidbits for practice-changing publications in oncology is usually they have really great names um and you know, you're like oh who comes up with this and to be honest with you i don't know maybe michael can <laughs> fill us in on this so let, let's go back about so what exactly they were doing so the treatment plan so patients were randomized to either receive adt alone or in combination with adt plus docetaxel so i'm not going to go through the dosing because i don't think that's important here but essentially the treatment was given every three weeks for six cycles 
and they're pre-medicated with dexamethasone. A lot of our patients are. It's very good for symptom management. Um, when we're looking at how they're stratified, you know, age, were they less than 70, were they over 70? What was their performance status? So ECOG, um, looking at how active they were, either a zero, one or two. So just for people who don't know about ECOG performance status, it goes from zero to five. Five, essentially, you're dead. Um, and zero, you have no functional limitations at all. And so they don't generally use ECOGS 3 to 4 in trials because these are quite brittle patients that if you give a new treatment and you make them really sick, doesn't really help. Okay. And they frequently have medical conditions that can confound the data, right, Josh? Uh, yeah, exactly. So you actually can't, you can't say whether or not the person was sick because of the treatment or because of, of something else. Okay. So other things to really talk about the stratification and sort of enrollment of the patients um prior adjuvant ADT was allowed if they'd had treatment that was less than 24 months or less and then progressed and had occurred more than sort of 12 months after completion of therapy as well um so anything else to really talk about in this trial so yes one of the things that this trial did and this is actually a really important component is you need to know how extensive the metastasis so what they were asking in this trial is was this high volume disease or low volume disease and for a long time i'm like what does that mean like you've got cancer like high volume means you've got lots of cancer essentially to kind of break it down low volume disease is might be just localized extension from the prostate bed but you know you've got some lymph nodes it's considered that it has spread but it's not in any of the viscera other name being organs or any of the bones and so they kind of stratify the extent of the metastases high volume which they defined as organs or greater than four bone lesions with greater than one beyond the vertebral bodies and pelvis michael do you know why they decide that as a kind of where they stratified the bone lesions I, I don't. I do know that obviously just based on people who have had prostate cancer that I've seen is that like prostate will make a beeline ten- for the vertebrae. Mm. Um, was it was it because if you have disease outside of the um, axial skeleton, so humeral shafts, femoral shafts, skull, that you're potentially considered more advanced and therefore more likely to benefit from more intensive therapy? I, I, I don't know. Look, that, that might have been their rationale, and it kind of does make sense. So uh, we do find that patients that have more extensive disease, they generally have a bigger response when they're given treatment, purely because there's more cancer to attack, there's more genetic mutations, which means uh, not all the time, but a lot of the time, you know, these cancers become sensitive to, to these drugs. But they do also sometimes need a bigger kick, don't they, as well? So you're, you're going to have uh, a... Um, you're going to need a um, bigger hammer, a bigger metaphorical hammer, as it were, um, to help these people survive as long than compared to the patient who has one or two bony lesions that that are tiny. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So talking a little bit more just about patient demographics is always important. Everyone is a man, just just, just to put it out there. Um, <laughs> and generally in their 60s, like Mikey was saying, majority were white and everyone had a pretty good performance status. Things to actually focus on here is about two-thirds of patients in both cohorts had a high volume of disease with um, quite a few, I think, having like bone metastases actually. And looking here, you know, at least 20% had sort of a prostatectomy, which means they had their prostate removed. Um, but a lot of patients, probably three quarters, hadn't had any prior local therapy. So I think these are predominantly people who were metastatic at time of diagnosis. 
because there's no point cutting or irradiating the prostate if if it's uh, already um, metastasized, correct? Yeah, exactly. So it, it goes with prostate cancer, but also a lot of other cancers. You, look, you could chop out the primary tumor, but if you have tumor elsewhere, then you're not actually helping this person. You're helping the person by taking out the prostate, but it's just causing problems. So one of the cool things about this trial, it's a pretty long follow-up. They had patients that they recruited from 2006 to 2012, 790 patients were enrolled and um, essentially were randomized to either A or B. Um, at the interim analysis, the total in October 2013, about half of the patient had their full information, you know, and they, they kind of got an analysis, which was absolutely awesome. Um, here so things to look at with survival which was one of the questions so uh, me so guys the, the, this is a great study so one of the things we find is that actually having overall survival data in a lot of our trials is difficult a because of short follow-up time b because of potentially you know it's not powered for that but this study was so median overall survival as i was saying 13.6 months longer when adt was given with early docetaxel than versus adt alone so that was 57.6 months versus 44 months with a hazard ratio for death of 0.61. Statistically significant with a p-value of less than 0.001. You'll find with a lot of our, our studies and our data, we're going to talk about if something is statistically significant or not. And the very basics of that is if it's not due to chance, it's going to be statistically significant, which means we can say with some certainty that this intervention is actually better than what we've previously been doing. Um, other things that they spoke about, 85, 85 prostate cancer deaths in the combination group versus 114 in the ADT alone group. Now, what they did find is that with the analysis, those with high volume disease was was better than the overall survival, where the median overall survival was 17 months longer in the combination group with ADT versus that alone, right? So what I spoke about first was all patients. But what we are really interested in here are those with high volume patients with a hazard ratio of 0.6 and a much longer overall survival as well. Um, so that's that's great. And at this point, the median survival time, the analysis hadn't actually been written in the subgroup with the low volume disease. And if we just duck across to an update um, before I continue on this trial, which which really showed that after a median follow-up of, of you know almost six years, Mark, it was 53 months, 12, 24, 30, 48. Yeah, five, five years. Um, that's embarrassing. I'm not going to be able to edit that out. But Maths was never your strong suit. I can't, I'm better at chemo dosing, I promise. Um, <laughs> so realistically, for those with low-volume disease, no overall survival benefit was observed with a hazard ratio of 1.04. And when you've got a hazard ratio above one, what does that mean? That means it's not uh, statistically, or it, it's uh, not uh, any different, or it might be worse. Yeah, so there's there's no perceived benefit of your your hypothesis or your intervention, um, really. So secondary endpoints like a lot of studies, they look at toxicities. This one was also looking at PSA. So Michael mentioned prostate-specific antigen before. We wanted to have a look at kind of, you know, PSA changes, really. Um, so the proportion of patients had a decrease in the PSA to essentially negligible at 12 months was 27.7% in the combination arm versus 16.8% in the ADT group alone. Um, median time of development to carcinogen-resistant prostate cancer, which essentially means they no longer respond to our hormone suppression techniques, right? 
was about 20 months in the combination arm and 11 months in the ADT arm. Most common grade three to five adverse events were febrile neutropenia, hypertension, and fatigue. Um, as a practical note, one of the things we always look at for enzalutamide, uh, starting enzalutamide is uh, rapid LFT toxicity. So when you start a patient on enzalutamide, at least uh, where I'm working at the moment, the common practice is to get them back uh, with bloods at two and four weeks to make sure that their liver hasn't uh, hasn't. I don't know, spontaneously combusted. Um, so, but that wasn't really a feature of the toxicity data in Enzymet. So as of 2019, we're looking at a uh, the addition of a drug that uh, to to the hormone-sensitive space that almost certainly has, uh, has a statistically and clinically significant benefit, um, but there was probably a little bit of finessing to be done that could really only be done with, uh, with ongoing follow-up. Uh, and fortunately, that um, that uh, update uh, uh, was recently uh, presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology um, uh, meeting in uh, in sunny, I guess, Chicago. Um, this was a, a prolo- uh, ongoing uh, analysis of the data that was at sixty eight months, which is uh, what five and a half years, Josh. Uh, yep. I'll yep. take your judgment. Take your judgment. <laughs> yep. So, um, so five and a, more than five and a half years, um, and it was basically looking at a greater body of data and taking a closer look at that data. So the main points from from the update were looking at patients and seeing if there was a difference between patients who had synchronous and metachronous metastatic disease. And, the, and what that means is synchronous disease is patients who present with metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis, what we call de novo metastatic disease. Metachronous metastatic disease means that a period of time, I think in the study um, they said sort of three to six months, um, has passed between diagnosis of prostate cancer and the onset of metastatic disease. Um, there's also some evidence um, from uh, uh, our first friend of the, friend of the, the show, uh, Dr. Sweeney, who did who was involved in Chartered, I believe, um, who uh, that, that uh, patients with metachronous metastatic disease uh, potentially represent more indolent disease, so they could potentially have better outcomes. There was also an exploratory uh, uh, subgroup analysis that looked at. Um, uh, patients, again, with synchronous or metastatic disease or patients with high volume or low volume disease. And it also tried to uh, separate the benefit of docetaxel uh, from the benefit of enzalutamide, trying to, to tear those particular threads apart. So in terms of the overall survival of the combined cohort, so this is every patient that ever received uh, more than one dose of the, of the trial drug. Uh, so at five and a half years, uh, median overall survival was uh, 73 months, if you can believe it, in the control arm. Uh, and it still was not reached in the enzalutamide arm. So we're getting to five and a half years and less than uh, less than half of the um, patients taking enzalutamide have had um, have had events. Uh, have, That's have, just have insane. Yeah. It? It really is. And, and you know, there are very few spaces in medical oncology where you're going to have this sort of, um, this sort of prolonged, um, uh, prolonged response in this proportion of patients with metastatic disease, like we see it with adjuvant patients um, who have the cancer cut out and then chemo or, or what have you. 
and and then they're cancer free you know that's hopefully what we would expect but for patients with metastatic disease who are just trundling along um to get to five and a half years and still not reach the median overall survival is just astounding um the five-year survival rate um in the control arm was 57 percent. so even patients who are not getting enzalutamide are still doing really well over half of them are alive at five years in enzalutamide it was 67 percent. so again you're you're theoretically overall doing better if you have enzalutamide in the hormone sensitive space um uh, i think the uh, uh, something else to uh, mention, and this is something that I guess once you start digging deeper into um, studies in medical oncology um, does sort of color your interpretation of um, how the data is presented. Because uh, what Professor Ian Davis, um, who's the first author on Enzymet, uh, presented at ASCO was also data on therapy after progression. So patients, even when they progressed and came off enzalutamide, they were still followed up until you know, they, they passed away. Um, and what this showed is, I guess, what we would expect is that there was substantial crossover in the control arm. And what that means is patients who didn't get enzalutamide first, when they progressed, subsequently received enzalutamide or a similar drug such as abiraterone. So 76% of patients received enzalutamide or abiraterone after progression, after they became castration resistant. Um, but what is particularly interesting is what the people in the enzalutamide arm got, because you really are at this point shoving all of your best um, agents up front, which sort of is leads us to, you know, to quote King George III from the musical Hamilton, what comes next? Um, so Josh is, Josh is laughing at me now. Um, but that th- you're not left with a whole heap um, after you after you've burned through um, a novel antiandrogen therapy, um, so the most common subsequent therapies in the enzalutamide arm: abiraterone. Twenty six percent of patients got abiraterone. Twenty six percent of patients got docetaxel. I guess either for the first or second time, and twenty one percent of patients got cabazitaxel, a similar but different chemotherapy to docetaxel. Fourteen percent of patients got other chemotherapy, which um, in my experience, would generally mean something like carboplatin, which is platinum-based chemotherapy, which is generally reserved for very late-stage um, disease, very heavily pretreated disease. And 4% of patients, or 3.4%, I should say, got um, a another emerging therapy that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, which is uh, uh, lutetium PSMA, which is a uh, radioactive um, uh, biological agent that uh, emits beta radiation um, after it's taken up by prostate cancer. It's pretty cool. Um, it, uh, the flip side of this though, is that 39% of patients who progressed on enzalutamide had no further treatment. So almost 40% of patients want that once they get through, um, their initial treatment, whether it's a doublet or a triplet have nothing else. Um, which, you know, is a bit scary, but I guess it's slightly offset by the fact that we still don't know what the median overall survival for patients taking enzalutamide is. Um, in terms of uh, other sort of data uh, from this update, um, it was thought that the benefit of patient or the benefit was mostly seen in patients with low volume disease. So this, these are these are patients who um, wouldn't meet the charted criteria, who would have been in the control group. So 
um, patients who would have just been getting ADT and enzalutamide. Um, again, these are exploratory subgroup analysis, and as Professor Ian Davis would tell me, these are just sort of hypothesis generating. They're just illustrative, so take them with a grain of salt. But to illustrate the, um, the, the point that the subgroup analysis is trying to make, the hazard ratio um, for survival in patients with a low volume of disease who uh, did receive docetaxel so, sorry, a low volume of, of disease that didn't receive docetaxel, I should say, um, was 0.51, whereas the patients with a high volume of disease that didn't receive docetaxel is 0.69. Uh, if we take the patients with um, low volume of disease that, for whatever reason, did receive docetaxel, it might come back to what we were talking about before, Josh, patients with very concentrated sort of um, axial skeletal disease. Um, the hazard ratio was 0.61, whereas the hazard ratio for patients who did receive docetaxel was 0.87. So that's a lot of numbers, but basically what it boils down to is the magnitude of benefit for sprinkling on a bit of enzalutamide on top of docetaxel appears at this stage to be less. And that's something to consider, especially if you've got a patient who has um, who has high volume disease. Um, However, when we come to looking at these Kaplan-Meier curves, and this is something that any budding oncologist will become uh, uh, intimately acquainted with, um, the patients who received enzalutamide by itself in in the lower risk patients, so patients with metachronous disease, so more indolent in theory disease, or patients with low volume synchronous metastatic disease, the uh, the uh, curves with between enzalutamide and enzalutamide and docetaxel appear to overlap, which means the uh, the benefit may be equivalent. Which means uh, it, it's becoming much more of a, much more of a trend that we're trying to avoid giving unnecessary treatment. And if we can avoid giving these people docetaxel and give them enzalutamide instead, then that is saving people obviously toxicity up front when they might not be getting much benefit. Um, so that is the updated uh, uh, analysis of Enzimet, and it's a, a very interesting study. Um, we know that Enzimet is active. It's an active drug. Um, but what this study really looks at is is finessing who we give it to and who we don't. And I guess my takeaways from this um, is that if you've got a patient in front of you that has lower risk disease, so metachronous metastatic disease or um, low volume disease, you might shy, not shy away, that's the wrong word, but you might um, be able to spare them docetaxel and give them enzalutamide up front um, and, uh, and help them that way. I guess that leaves the question, where does the triplet come in where you're just hitting them with all three barrels? Um, the, the standard answer to that, I guess, would be patients with very, um, very high volume disease who are very young and fit. And so you want to hit them hard and hit them fast and, and, not, and try and maximize the initial benefit, knowing that subsequent therapies will have, you know, consecutively less benefit as the cancer gets more and more pretreated, more and more resistant. Um, so a couple of limitations, I guess. The, the docetaxel use was not randomized, so that does make it a bit hard to tease out how much of the benefit was docetaxel, how much of the benefit was the enzalutamide. Um, but 
you know, the signal and across the subgroups definitely suggests that there was a significant benefit. And again, the subset analysis, it is illustrative. It's not something, it's not a hill to die on necessarily. You can't point to it and say, this is the reason that I have, um, that I have made this decision. But it is part of a growing body of evidence that moving these novel antiandrogens earlier is having, is, is benefiting patients. And I guess the, the idea of sparing patients chemotherapy is obviously a very attractive one. Um, I got an interesting question. I, it's a bit beyond the scope, I guess, of the Enzimet trial. Like if you're using enzalutamide earlier, has there been anything looking about re-challenging people with Enza down the track? I that is that is a question I'm not sure about. I know there is evidence that if you progress on one antiandrogen, re-challenging them with another one tends not work. Well, it should. It does not work. Yeah, exactly. So, so, and I guess they all sort of. That very simplistically, they all tend to work in a very similar way. So if a cancer has found a way to grow despite blocking that one way, then a, a, a similar drug with a different brand name or a different coating is not going to have too, too, much of a, too much of an effect. Um, the difference, though, or, or where there is a little bit of um, subtlety, I guess, is those studies were done in the castration-resistant setting. So mm. patients had say, enzalutamide after they had become castration resistant, and then they went on to abiraterone where you're treating the same cancer effectively. I don't think it's very much of a stretch to say that hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and castration-resistant prostate cancer are two very different beasts. So I think the question remains unanswered as far as I'm aware about, you know, re-challenging after the onset of castration resistance whether you're going to still have an effect, and you might. Um, I guess the question will be whether you re-challenge with enzalutamide or if you do abiraterone or darolutamide or something different. Yeah, I was just curious because I was, I was trying to try and figure out if there was any kind of pathway because they're all good drugs, but, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a bit of a shame because it's, it's like a lot of the things that we treat now earlier on, Michael, it's that once they progress, you've kind of used that, arrow um in your quiver um which means potentially we need more drugs to kind of stem it but again maybe in something like enzalutamide if you've got amazing overall survival and pfs that if these are elderly patients you might not need anything else because they essentially live out their days they have a great life you know you treat them and then they don't need to see you anymore exactly exactly and i think that Again, as I said at the start of this section, you know, this is sort of a fantasy land where we have access to anything and everything that we want because we can't use enzalutamide in this space. There have been grumblings, at least for the last few years, that enzalutamide might be getting approval for use in the hormone-sensitive space. But, um, you know, in a in a perfect world where we had access to to every drug that we could, I mean, you would be tempted to reuse something or reuse a similar drug that you know had worked in the past mm. especially if the patient was able to tolerate it so that's that's where where the finessing comes in and and as a uh, more experienced listeners will know you run out of evidence very quickly when patients get heavily pre-treated and then you've just sort of got to take logical leaps i guess towards what you know or what you think will work one of the things I, I love, I think, sorry, Michael, this isn't really a question, but more an observation going back to the people who authored this trial. I work with one of them and um, 
you know, there's, there's a number floating, I think, through Sydney and probably Melbourne as well um, that are quite prominent prostate oncologists. And it's just, it's still very nice to see their names on such a, I guess, a what well, potentially game-changing trial and also the irony that it's not approved in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I'm pretty sure this is actually something that is is done not uncommonly in places like America. Um, uh, but yes, in Australia, uh, by the nature of our public health system, we do, we do lag behind a bit. Um, so I guess coming back to our hypothetical patient, uh, Josh, with our, what we now know, um, through the course of this podcast is a patient who has high volume disease because of that spot in his humerus. Um, and uh, who is 68 otherwise well and sits down mm. and says, Doc, what are you going to give me or what, what, what do I need to do? What are you going to give him, I guess, take it first in, uh, in the current setting based on restrictions that we have and then in this wondrous fantasy land we keep on talking about where we can do anything we want? Well, the one, in the, uh, the restricted world, I mean, if uh, it's all about open disclosure, right, because we have to have the discussion that we've got two pretty good treatment options. Your, you know, enzalutamide looks amazing in this setting that, but we don't have access to it. So if they're willing to self fund it, um, which I think is about 14 grand a year by my very bad um, calculations, looking at um, the government websites, which is, you know, a, a, a lot of money, especially that's if even more for, lattes. And if you're on it for five years and let's say you're a retiree or, you know, you just don't have the finances that that's that's just not feasible. Um, so in the real world, we would have to go for the docetaxel. Um, and then the good the good thing about that is if you go for the docetaxel and then they do progress and then you're looking for options, they become carcinoma resistant, you have enzalutamide available, right? And it's still a very good drug in the metastatic setting. Sorry, sorry, in the carcinoma resistant setting. Um, in an ideal world, and I have everything approved and I can literally click a button and my patient gets it. You know what? I, I, I would probably think about, I'd have that discussion and see what they want, but going for enzalutamide is not a bad option. You know, if we give this person five plus years, in five years time, the landscape's going to change again. There's going to be more drug options, you know, more studies that have been published. And so Ideally, there's probably going to be more options for this patient to take. Would you give them the triplet? I think that's a harder question to answer um, because we, we don't. I don't think there's enough evidence to say the triplet therapy would be that much more beneficial than just the doublet. Would you agree, or would you disagree to yeah. that statement? Yeah, no, and I guess the the question then, you know, I I do agree because the the evidence is is look, it's there, there's a suggestion, but um, it's, it's certainly not robust, I guess. And, and you, you, need, uh, you need dedicated studies or dedicated data to actually answer that question. Um, but I guess the question is, if we both agree that the, the triplet is an option in very select, very select cadre of patients, mm. but probably not our hypothetical patient, what doublet do you think you'd choose? Would you use the tried and true docetaxel or would you use the new kid on the block enzalutamide in a patient with let's call it let's call it um let's make it difficult um with, with synch synchronous high volume disease so 
Um, so higher risk of, of progression and aggression. Um, and where Enzimet, I mean, the, the suggestion of, of a benefit was potentially, um, potentially smaller. Oh, it's a hard one. It, it's a hard, yeah. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be easy. This, this is not fair. Look, I guess I would go with everyone. If they're a young patient, I would go with everyone has the best evidence, including the hypothetical benefit. So you so you would use Enza? I'd use Enza, right? Mm. Because these guys, you know, let's say, let's push him 15 years younger. He's a 45-year-old guy, three kids working full time. I, I need, I want him to live as long as possible so we have other options down the line. Mm. Um, and at the moment, enzalutamide just kind of, it's promising. It shows something that I would probably offer up front, especially if it was available. Hmm. Hmm. I guess if, if we are looking at the 45-year-old, um, that that might be someone that we're more inclined to to give the triplet as well. Yeah. If they can take it. Would you agree with me or would you uh, yeah. disagree, Mikey? Yeah, no, I, I would agree that, you know, it, it always comes down to a balance of toxicity, um, patient preference, and um, what you think the benefit is going to be. I mean, it's always a guess. It's always an educated guess. I think in very young patients, um, sort of borrowing for what we're starting to do in um, colorectal cancer is is pushing everything to the front. And, and, and that showed a lot of benefit, hard. right? That showed, you know, um, pushing people really hard in metastatic colorectal cancer beyond the scope of today's discussion. No, we'll get into that, that later. We will, we will. And if you're really interested, tell us and we will move it more forward. Um, no, just kidding. Um, you know, hitting people hard, there is a there is a subset that we cure, right? Mm. Even in the metastatic colorectal setting. And, you know, there's a lot we don't know, but what we know is that hitting people hard has generally shown better outcomes. Better outcomes. Yeah. Treating people earlier has better outcomes. And this is a change in methodology from 20, 20 years ago where they like to reserve their good treatments because they know the person's going to progress. But we didn't have, we couldn't manage symptoms very well back then. We couldn't manage a lot of things. So... Mm. That's kind of my my theory, and Michael's completely correct about sort of stealing things from other cancers to use in their own stream. Hmm. All right, we might uh, leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts or from wherever you get your podcasts. Um, thanks very much, Josh, for that invigorating discussion on hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. I love a bit of a debate, you know that. Yeah, it's it's it's... Good for the soul. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, until next time, then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. And uh, take care and we'll see you next time.